Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I am your host this week, Father David Mowry, chaplain of the Movies by Minutes community. And I am thrilled to be joined as my guest today, a purveyor of a free podcast, Rob Lumley. Rob, Hi. welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. I am, I am, de- I am delighted to talk about this film. Well, I'm, and I'm delighted to have you on to talk about it. And maybe we can make this truly the best years of our lives talking about this film together. So what, what's your background with this movie? Um, yeah, so I, I went to way back uh, in the early aughts. I was a uh, college student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I was a mm. film student. And uh, my roommate and one of my uh, best friends was also uh, in film. And one of our, I don't remember the details because it's, you know, almost tw- almost 20 years ago now, uh, 15 plus years ago. But we were assigned to, like, watch this movie, which I didn't know much about at the time. And, you know, you're sort of like, oh, three-hour-long movie from the 40s. And mm-hmm. I remember we got the VHS and we sat down and watched it. And for three hours, we were totally silent and moved by this whole thing. Like, I remember we started wow. really late at night, too. You know, it was probably like, you know, 1130. We're like, oh, let's start the best years of our lives. So we can get this done with so we can watch it for this class. And uh, I just remember, like, how much that movie just moved us. And I just I still do. I revisited it uh, less than a year ago. Um, and I rewatched it, and I I just think it's I honestly think it's an all timer. What is it that brings you back to this movie? Was there something that had struck you when you first watched it that you wanted to go back and visit, or was there something new that jumped out of you revisiting this movie again? I think how I think how modern it feels for a movie that's so old. I mean, you know this this came out in November of nineteen forty six. And um, it's, I mean, a lot of this movie in this the minute we'll talk about, we're, you know, we're looking at PTSD here. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't, as far as I know, I don't think that was the term for it at that point. I think maybe just shell-shocked would be the term people would use then. But um, just this very human story of of these people. And, and you know, I generally don't, and we, we can get into this later, I generally don't love war films. Um and this is this movie kind of cleverly gets around a lot of issues I think that are inherent with war films, uh, and ends up making this like really I don't know I just think it's an incredible story and I think uh, it's very much of its time it's like post World War II but I think the 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 actual weight of this movie is timeless because it treats something timeless. It treats yes. the impact of war on the human person. And that is something that we have been wrestling with as a species ever since we started warring with each mm-hmm. other. And we have to wrestle with the fact that war takes a toll, not just on those who die in battle, but on those who survive as well. And you, you mentioned we didn't even have language to talk about that. The, the word of shell shock was only around after the invention of artillery when all of a sudden you had such earth-shaking weapons that could throw death from afar and affect you without even seeing the enemy's face. 
before that, I, I don't even know how, say, those caught up in medieval warfare or those who fought in you know, the pharaoh's armies, if they had the same kind of uh, language to talk about this level of trauma. I was talking with one of my priest friends who had done some work in psychology and counseling before he went into the priesthood. And I was sounding him out. Do you want to come on the podcast? We have a scene where someone's wrestling with a PTSD nightmare. And he was very frank with me and said, I've been out of the game for a while. A lot of the, the language and research around this topic has changed a lot. And I don't want to speak to something I don't know well, mm-hmm. especially given something that is so raw for so many people and the trauma that we can we see fred go through in this minute is obviously affecting him deeply and in fact this minute is minute 52 of the best years of our lives and in this minute the minute begins with fred turning in his sleep and it ends with fred shouting in his sleep yeah yeah, we we. I mean, there's 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 not a lot in this minute to talk about. <laughs> Essentially, that like you know the horrors of war are, you know, Fred is dealing with them, uh, and you know this is the, the night the night after he gets home. I mean, this the very not, yeah the the very night he gets back. Yeah, and there's that's the other thing I think that's interesting is um, even outside that I think, you know, the this generation the silent this this the greatest generation or whatever term we want to use. You know, a lot of people went through this and then kind of the like views of masculinity at that time say you just quietly deal and carry what you have. Mm-hmm. And we sort of see that three different men attempt to do that and you kind of find how fruitless it is because they all they all have struggle with that. They need some you need to open up and you need to you can't bury it in alcohol, you know, that like Al does or mm-hmm. um, you know, Homer tries to ignore a very, you know, apparent uh, th- part of his life that he has to get through and, and you have mm-hmm. the same thing with Fred. I mean, in some ways, Fred is, you know, the most harmed by this war. Which is fascinating when you're comparing him to a character like Homer who has lost his hands. But from the very beginning of the movie, we see that Homer has at least some bravado yeah. about the scars he carries. You know, he's, he's signing his name on the whatever that requisition form in the, the airport office. And he's like, well, what, what's this? Never seen hands before? What's the big deal? But yeah. I think that is something where his obvious deformity, his obvious handicap allows him to have that kind of bravado. Because it's right there out in the open. Everyone can see it. And so Homer has to acknowledge it. He can't pretend otherwise. Fred, as we see in this minute, it it takes him falling asleep into that state of vulnerability for that pain, that scar to start showing itself. Mm -hmm. Fred would not choose to reveal his negative experience, this emotional scar from losing his crewmates, his comrades in flight, whatever this bomb run gone wrong ended up taking from him. Yeah, and even Al, I mean, you know, it's sort of like just push forward. Like, well, let's just go out. Let's just, let's go out and have a good time. And, you know, you can kind of just push back this 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 moment of like, you know, for, for Fred, he's all by himself laying in bed and he goes to sleep. And even in his dreams, you know, he's he's haunted by this. Oh, that's interesting. There's a whole, yeah, there's a whole theme of loss for Fred where he has been trying to get 
something back. He wants to find some familiarity, and he doesn't look for it in his parents' house. He just drops off his stuff at the, mm-hmm. the shack underneath the tracks and wants to find his wife. He wants to find Marie. For him, that's normalcy. That is stability. I want to get back to this woman that I married, that I'm crazy about. I carried her picture in every bombing run I went on. Yep. And he has lost that stability where he looks to find it. We, we saw that yeah, really pathetic scene of the poor guy is ringing the doorbell outside the apartment and no one's letting him in. He has no place else to land, which is a, a very difficult thing to, to a very difficult situation for any pilot. And, you know, you kind of can, I know it's a little different. I mean, it's different, but in some ways it's not, you, you know, even this, the difficulty of a veteran coming back from war and having to like reintegrate into life is hard um, for a lot of people. And we actually provide resources for that. Not enough, but like we do as like a country Mm -hmm. um, at least do something for that. And you kind of compare it to people who come out of prison. Right. And, Mm. and there's none of that. There's none of that. You, you have, Mm -hmm. you still have less rights. You you know, you don't even get to like go back to life as normal. And it's just like, we kind of expect these as humans, we expect people to just kind of like snap back into like what is, I don't want to say normal, but you know, what is expected and, and depending on what you're coming from or going through, that can be really hard to impossible. Because normal is always changing. Mm-hmm. We, we develop a picture in our heads of what normal life is going to look like. And for people like veterans from war or for those who are in prison, their normal is oftentimes a frozen picture. It is whatever life was like before I went through this completely life-altering experience. And once I leave that, I'll be able to return and pick up exactly where I left off. Mm-hmm. But normal life has kept on going outside of the war, outside of the prison walls. And when the veteran, when the prisoner re-enters life, well, it's not normal at all for them. It's normal for everyone else because they've kept on living. There's no place to, uh, there's no, there, first, there's no place for them to re-enter. And then there's also no place for them to bring their experience of what they went through into their new situation. Because what they went through, unfortunately for Fred, what he went through was normal. The stress of the bombing run, the stress of seeing the other plane shot down, the trauma of losing a friend like Godowski, who you know, he, he's shouting. We can hear him through uh, the door. Bail out, you guys. Jump. Get out of there. Bail out. Godowski. Godowski. Get out of that plane. Yeah. And I, I don't think Godowski made it. Yeah. He has yeah. no place to, to share that trauma and to integrate it into now what's normal life yeah like uh you know i mentioned earlier about um how this this seems actually a good example of it's hard to do i think francis truffaut the french filmmaker said that every film about war ends up being pro-war um which is probably more of there's exceptions to that rule um but i think in general I, i think he's right you know you even look at a movie like 1917 which is like a good movie but like it doesn't you know whenever you have Hollywood stars running through a battlefield doing something heroic, it ends up making war seem heroic. Even if you show the horrors and everything around it, like just in its design, you're there's something that's ends up being pro war about doing that. This movie steps around it because mm-hmm. this is literally we're not showing any war, we're not showing any battle scenes. This is this is watching uh, these veterans come back home and try 
tried to live this normal life and you just see how the horrors of the war, we don't even have to see it. It's in, in, in like all violence, uh, you know, in, in cinema, off screen violence is way more um, affecting than seeing it on screen. And just like, you know, watching these people deal with it or seeing like with Homer, what it did to him, mm-hmm. um, I think is a really effective and, way of of sort of having a glimpse at what war does to people without actually having to show battles right because there's the the storytelling part of us that wants to acknowledge the heroism that's possible in wartime and that goes all the way back to the iliad and and even to the stories that we don't have that didn't make it uh through the historical record but there's always been a desire to elevate what is good and what is noble and what is courageous. So the stories of human persons facing adversity and being able to summon up great strength in the face of the enemy. And there is something primal that uh, in that for us. However, we have been seeing the effects of war again and again and again. And that kind of story of heroism and courage needs to be nuanced with the real human cost of war. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was courage, but at what cost? You, you mentioned 1917. The cost of that story, there is great heroism in that story, but the cost is tremendous. Absolutely. And and, and it's, it's going to cost most for those who didn't see what happened, you know, for those soldiers who died. Uh, their family members are never going to know exactly what happened. And so with all, that, all that's going to survive is the story. And, of course, the story we want to survive is the story that celebrates the greatest strengths of those people. Mm-hmm. And and those should be remembered. I'm grateful, to your point, I'm grateful for a movie like The Best Years of Our Lives because it shows heroism in a different arena. It shows a courage and a strength to face adversity in the aftermath of war as much as in the teeth of it. And, and, and um you know, a common war trope is like seeing the wife at home, mm. you know, caring for the kids. But like this is this is even more. Now we have to see them actually deal with their, you know, their husbands are back home now. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you talk about normalcy change, people change and any amount of time changes someone. And, and now you add like you're at war. <laughs> you're like in <laughs> battles like that's going to like fundamentally change you. It has to to some level. Um and you know we're, we we kind of have these like these are in some ways the true heroes of these of this movie is the you know the Wilmas and the uh, Peggies um, who are you know um, trying to help guide their their guide these men through these incredibly tough times for them. They have already been doing so much to keep. Uh, again, we come back to the theme of normal life to keep normal life going mm-hmm. in the country. Uh, we hear. Uh, later on about or maybe even earlier i can't remember now but peggy talks about her work at the hospital and how draining how draining hospital life is when you have all the able-bodied men around to help with the hospital work i can't imagine how slammed she must be yeah when with so many uh, men off fighting in the war you look at millie trying to keep 
the the family running because obviously you know her son Rob is just an absolute handful. Uh, Jonathan yesterday talked about how how Rob brings a lot of gosh Jilly Will- G Willikers energy to uh, to the movie, but he's very bright, very inquisitive, and you know very nosy, and so that takes a lot to make sure that he doesn't stick his nose where it doesn't belong, that he is around <laughs> and doesn't get himself into trouble in hmm. time for his dad to come back. Uh, the and Peggy here in this minute, she is obviously bringing her experience as a nurse and caring for people into this experience. She's got this absolute stranger who she met at the bar just a couple yep. hours ago, and he was <laughs> obviously drunk at the time. Mm-hmm. And they've been more than gracious to him, putting up in her bed. She's I know. Out <laughs> in the- <laughs> she's sleeping out of the couch and when she hears the stranger having the traumatic nightmare she does what i would never do she gets up yeah i I would just lay there like okay maybe this is a dream maybe i can just wait this thing out yep Uh, i don't want to put myself in this situation i'm just going to ignore this well that's why peggy is better than i am yeah peggy's a real hero yeah no she she comes in there and you know, I asked if he's okay, and like, doesn't she like? I don't. We won't get to that yet. She just comes in at this point, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I just think it's a fascinating movie. I think even you think of the timing of how like accelerated everything is. You know, um, VE Day is is May nineteen forty five. VJ mm-hmm. Day is September nineteen forty five. The novella that this movie is based off, which I haven't read, um, called Glory for Me, came out in 1945. This movie comes out in November of 46. Like, this is a very, I mean, this is, like, all very raw. Um, And, and, you know, like, uh, we can get into him. I know he's not in this minute, but, like, Frederick March, um, Mm -hmm. I believe he was a World War I vet. So, like, you know, this stuff, this stuff, you know, everyone's dealing with this at home in some way or the other it's touched somehow by this war and then to make this movie about it i i don't know i i just think i just really i really just think that this is a, a five-star classic film well it it shows a willingness to dive into the difficulties posed by the war it shows a, a mature recollection and reflection on what's just happened For, to yep. imagine the movies that were coming out a year after September 11th. Yeah. We we were not ready for that as a country. No, we were not ready no. for any kind of serious, mature reflection on just what the hell happened to us as a country. Yeah. And it took years after that for any kind of art, any kind of story about that day to have the level of nuance we see in this movie, which was made a year after World War II ended. Mm-hmm. There's it's wild. A, it, it's it's incredible to me. I I hadn't thought about that till you you brought up the timeline, but both the 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 book's original the novella's original author and uh, William Wyler to pick this story up in the midst of what I'm sure was a heady sense of celebration. We because America came out really great from World War II. Yeah, we, yeah. we suffered we suffered the attack at Pearl Harbor, but that was about it uh, yeah yeah you compare it to other countries uh yeah america didn't suffer nearly as much as the other countries involved there's a a real 
fairy tale aspect that World War II takes on that persists even now in our cultural mm -hmm. imagination. So to see a movie from 1946 where you don't have cigar-chomping John Wayne you know, dropping bombs on Nazis, but instead you have a man who is suffering from a shell shock nightmare, says a lot about how people were processing and how people were being invited into a mature reflection on, okay, yes, we won. Now what? What yeah. happens next? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned William Wyler. William Wyler is great, man. William Wyler has done <laughs> a lot of, a lot of good movies and has, you know, directed a lot of, you know, he like, um, Roman Holiday he directed, which is Audrey mm -hmm. Hepburn's first movie. Um, he directed some Betty Davis movies, which I, I might I have. If you like Hollywood gossip, I have some stories on that. Um, oh, salacious! Very salacious! Very <laughs> salacious! Um, but yeah, he he's like I would say like a contemporary for him would be um, maybe David Fincher because uh, it's a guy who like visually is very impressive and is sort of mm -hmm. known as a perfectionist demands mm -hmm. a lot of takes sort of guy like that mm. um i think that would probably be like what what weiler um and and you know he it's just like a it's also just a really you know this movie won a lot of oscars oh, yeah. uh, for a reason i mean it, the script is tight the performances are great weiler like does the right amount of like flair as a director it's uh, the cinematographer is Greg Tolan, who obviously famously did um, Citizen Kane as well. So, like, it's just like, you know, there's a lot of issues and problems with the Hollywood system that existed in the 40s. But, man, when they hit, when they made these, like, incredible movies, and the 40s is full of this. Oh, yeah. Just, it, I mean, they're they're really great. That system built, some, like, really did create some incredible stuff. It's the law of averages. You, you yeah. pump out enough stuff – some of it's going to be great. That's true. I mean, they a were. A lot of it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a that's a really good point. Um, yeah, because Weiler was like he started directing in 1925 mm -hmm. and continued directing until, I mean, he did Funny Girls with Streisand in '68. Did he really? Oh, I forgot yeah. about that. He did wow. Ben Hur as right, well. Of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, so the story of him is very salacious, and I I'm only going to bring it up because I literally after. Uh, a few days after you had asked me about coming on, I was reading. I'm reading a book about Howard Hughes. Mm, um, okay, which which is by uh, Karina Longworth, who does the You Must Remember This podcast. Mm -hmm. um, who also her, I her partner is Ryan Johnson. So uh, everything goes back to Star Wars, as you know. Always. Yep. So <laughs> I I <laughs> okay. So uh, before this, uh, one of the other big movies Weiler did was um, he did uh, Jezebel, which is 1938. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's when um, Betty Davis received three noms underneath in movies that he directed and won her second Oscar in Jezebel. Mm. Uh, and she was a big fan of Weiler. Um, well, let me tell you how much of a fan she was. Uh-oh. Uh <laughs> so – on set during Jezebel, this is, I'm quoting from the book here, um, and I, I'll just give the name of the book so people know, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in, Holly, in, in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. That's the mm. book. Salacious title. Okay. On set, Davis had begun an affair with the film's director, William Wyler, and she credited her performance as a woman in love with Henry Fonda to the fact that her beloved Willie was standing behind the camera. 
But Davis also had a husband, Ham Nelson, who had been her high school sweetheart. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ham, Ham Nelson. Yep. Okay, go um, on. <laughs> when she realized she was pregnant, probably with Weiler's baby, mm-hmm. uh, Davis had an abortion. But that is, I mean, like classic Hollywood is wild to me because like we all have this, once again, this vision of just these like, and they were incredibly talented people, but like oh, yeah. that there wasn't this sort of like the stuff that we, that goes on. It's just, it's wild to me, uh, classic Hollywood. So let me continue this gives, Betty Davis thing. I mean, it gives new to... meaning to the phrase making love to the camera. If she's seeing William yeah. Wilder behind the camera and really being able to get into her performance because of it. So let me let me end this with uh, this is in a Howard Hughes book. And so later after that relationship, um, Betty Davis and Howard Hughes and Howard Hughes had a relationship with a lot of different actresses. Mm. Um, I want to I'm just going to leave it. Let's leave it on a little more positive note here uh, with Betty Davis Uh, on Howard Hughes. She said, you know, I was the only one who ever brought Howard Hughes to a sexual climax or so he said at the time. Davis bragged. It's true. That is to say, it's true that he said it. (laughs) <laughs> or let's say I believed it when he told me that. I was wildly naive at the time. It may have been his regular seduction gambit. Anyway, it worked with me, and it was cheaper than buying gifts. But Howard Huge, he was not. Whoa, Betty Davis. Telling Betty it all. Betty Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. I, I honestly, the only reason I'm bringing that up is I literally was reading yes last night and I was like oh my gosh William Wyler came up and then this Betty Davis connection I was like well I don't really have a lot of podcasts where I could talk about Betty Davis and William Wyler and so well I think we know what the next season of a free podcast is going to yes. be about yeah, we'll to do, maybe we should do some Betty Davis movies um, so <laughs> well, I, you know, maybe they had to they had, they had to find an outlet for all that kind of behavior because by this point, right by the time they're making Jezebel, the Hayes Code is in yeah. place, and so lots of things are really locked down in the movie itself. So that, that stuff comes out sideways sometimes. Yeah, and there's also like you know Hollywood was also like a lot of these women were getting married incredibly young. Mm. A lot of times you're like set up in these marriages, you know, from the studio. I mean, it was just. That's why when you look a lot, especially at like actresses from that time, they have like six, like six marriages or something, and a lot oh, of them yeah. were just because it was just a studio like trying to be like, well, let's marry this person so you you know your movie will do better. Um, Modern day yeah. dukes and barons trying to cement their <laughs> legacy by arranging marriages really was yeah, that's mm-hmm. actually a really good comparison. Um, so the other thing, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm going off on this, but I would like to talk about Frederick March for a second. Oh, sure. Frederick Mark, who, who features so prominently in this movie, uh, yep. plays Al the Sergeant. Sure. What What do you want to tell us about old Marshy? So I've always – Frederick March has been a name I've known for a while because, I, uh, as I mentioned, I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, and mm-hmm. so did Frederick March. Oh, look mm-hmm. at that. Alma mater connection. That's right. And now um, with all these things, it gets a little complicated, which we'll get to. Um, he uh, – there was a March play circle – which was, um, I, I think, I don't really know what it is now because there's been a lot of renovations on campus. But when I was there, it was like this little like theater where they'd put on like small plays. But also, uh, I was part of the film committee and we would uh, project movies there on weekends. And I would go up and like present whatever movie we were going to watch. And, mm-hmm. and then it would, you know, for free, students and community can go and watch that movie. So I would do that in the Frederick March Play Circle. Um, 
Frederick March is an interesting. I'm sure this has maybe been talked about already. Uh, maybe not, but he's had an interesting. It's complicated. So it was kind of discovered recently, a few years ago, that he was in, uh, while he was at campus here, he was in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, what? Yeah, but, well, I don't want to say but. <laughs> that's that's not fair. Uh, it, it, a lot of this is probably, quite frankly, because of Birth of a Nation, right? Like when Birth uh-huh. of a Nation came out, um, all of a sudden, like, you know, interest in the Ku Klux Klan went way up. And so there was on campus during the 20s, the Klu- the Ku Klux Klan was a group. He was part of it. It didn't have any affiliation with the, like, national version of it. Mm-hmm. The the records of whatever they did or didn't do isn't really – we don't really know what it is, like, what was happening. But the fact that it used that name is problematic enough, obviously. Sure. Um, so you think they were like Ku Klux Klan fanboys? <laughs> I have no, I, I don't know. My God, I hope not. I mean, who knows? I don't I know. I think that's worse, honestly. Yeah. That. So what's weird about it is, you know, as I mentioned, March was uh, in World War One. He ended up uh, being in World War One, mm-hmm. and, and in Hollywood, he was part of like an anti-Nazi league. Um, so like, yeah, he co-founded the Hollywood anti-Nazi league, um, along with like Dorothy Parker and Fritz Lang and Mm -hmm. Oscar Hammerstein. And in 1938, he was actually, he was one of the Hollywood people that was investigated by the house of, uh, house of committee of un-American activities and their hunt for communists. So it's weird to me that like, you know, this guy was like a lifelong Democrat and started the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, but also in college was part of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> Frederick um, Marsh continues to find himself in the center of so much controversy. Like, yeah, is, sometimes what? maybe, you know, sometimes just be careful the the groups you join. <laughs> oh, sure I, I just came in for the free pie. I had no idea what this was actually going. Oh, my goodness. What are people doing here? <laughs> what the, what the, I mean, we got these free hoods, and I didn't think anything of it. But <laughs> It's cold all, here, you know. They're, they're all serious about this. Oh, no. Uh, so, yeah, Frederick March. I've always, you know, so whenever I see him in movies, I, I get, like, weirdly excited. Of course, like I said, a few years ago, it was sort of, like, ruined a little bit. When I was like, oh, no, what? I'll never meet your heroes. Yeah, exactly. Um, even, even when they're anti-Nazis. Even when they're anti-Nazis and suspected of being communists, they may have been a part of a group they should have been part of. <laughs> well, to close out this minute, I just want to mention the music because I think the the music throughout the scene is really interesting. The music cycles through a number of chords without any resolution. We have this nightmarish cycle of chords that we go through because Fred can't get out of this nightmare and musically we're kept in suspense we keep waiting for something to resolve to find a chord where things will settle down but the nightmare doesn't allow us to and what i love in this minute the music fades it it is muted when we are looking at peggy sleeping out on the couch because the music is coming from fred's nightmare and she hears Fred's voice muffled through the door, and the music is likewise muffled through the door because Fred is the source of all this tension. So I like the music then coming back in as Peggy enters the room because now she's fully entering into this moment of Fred's trauma, this moment of Fred's vulnerability that had only been muffled somewhat through a door out in the library. Uh, the music is 
doing a great job of communicating the emotion of the scene. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I yeah make, that makes a lot of sense. I I wish I had the ear that people um, do for scores. Like I either like them or don't, but I don't like I, I don't like I I just can't can't push into thinking anymore on that. But that's really mm-hmm. interesting. The the use of music is an important part of helping the scene along. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that <laughs> that that cut of a Shining trailer where they're playing uh, Strawberry Hill underneath it and makes it into this kind of coming-of-age story. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Music can do a lot to change how a film is perceived. It's sort of like uh, my my day job is I, I, I build websites. It's what I do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of like kind of like you should – like ideally – the friction of the site should work in a way that you don't notice it. And that's kind of how I feel like a good score works too. Is it just like it's, it's leading into the movie the way it's supposed to. And if it's going really well, you don't even really notice it during the movie until like, you know, on a rewatch or afterwards that you're like, Oh man, the score. Mm-hmm. It's pretty impressive. Um, so you, I, I'm, so I'm curious, are, are you a fan of the score of this movie? I think the score does a very serviceable job of communicating the emotion of the film. I was aware of a couple themes running throughout the film, but in this scene in particular, since we're laser focused one minute at a time, it was interesting to me to watch this music buildup. We had some very gentle strings yesterday as Boone city goes to sleep that now roll into this nightmare tension and we'll see in, in the days to come what all happens with that music and how it helps to tell the story of Fred's nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as for the, the story of this minute, we're uh, wrapping up here on minute 52. But before we end, Rob, I've been asking uh, those who come on the show about any personal connections that you have to veterans. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone in your family or anyone that you know well that like Fred and Homer and Al came home from war and had to find what normal life was again. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned I went to college in the early aughts. So this fact I'm about to tell you is going to blow people's minds if they don't already know this. But um, my father was a World War II vet. There's a big age difference between really? my dad and my mother. My dad wow. was older. Um, so uh, my dad on his let's see it's 1945 on his 20th birthday literally his 20 like his day of his birth 20 years um is when he hit the beach at Iwo Jima that was his 20th birthday oh my goodness isn't that wild I, oh, i've man. i've like known that fact my entire life and i always think about that especially when i was in my 20s like just how different my life is <laughs> this I'm, idea of like I'm, your birthday you know, that's what happened on your birthday. 20, 20, man, 20 years old. Right. Because of that. course, ev- every young man, when he gets to 20, hates his 20th birthday because it is not his 21st birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the 20th birthday is just this big nothing. So I'm thinking back to my 20 year old self and I, I would not have made it through the oh. army. I, there's no way I could have landed on, you know, Atlantic beach, much less the beach of Iwo Jima. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's that's a thing that we think about more and more is just how young, so you know, it's how young these and men and women now, of course, but like at the time, men, it's just um, it's just it's just wild. So yeah, my dad, uh, Iwo Jima, um, mm-hmm. and uh, came home. He had a Purple Heart, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the weird thing, and I think part of the reason why 
you were asked at the beginning why this movie means so much to me in a weird way. Um, uh, my dad, after he got back from the war, he worked in a paper factory and the story I always heard was that he was like, you know, t- taking the paper out of whatever the machine was. And someone on the other side didn't know he was doing that and turned it on and he lost his right hand <gasps> in the paper machine. Oh, so my dad no. like survives world war two and then loses his hand shortly afterwards. So, like, even though it doesn't quite work, because, like, Homer lost both his hands and he's, you know, it's from war. Like, my dad was a World War II vet and did shortly afterwards. Like, my whole life had only one hand. Um, so, yeah, that's a pretty pretty close connection for me on that. Wow. Have you watched this movie with your dad? I have not. He has since passed away. Oh. Um he, you know, he was always pretty quiet about it. I mean, we mm-hmm. knew, we knew, um, I mean, obviously we knew, but it wasn't a thing he really liked to talk about. So, sure. you know, we go back to that sort of, um, you know, this sort of like masculinity in this, in this era. And you sort of just, you know, you were just expected to just sit with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, I mean, my dad was a wonderful father and, uh, and, but it, that's just like it's something where I've actually thought about maybe spending time looking at more of it now, because mm-hmm. with the records of World War II stuff is pretty is pretty accessible now, and maybe trying to learn more on my own at this point. But yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. Wow. Well, that's a tremendous connection you have to the the characters in this movie to have grown up with someone who knows firsthand what it was like to go through what Al and Fred and Homer went through fictionally and to have someone who went through the reality of it. Yeah. I think it's it's a really it's a, I think that's a good project for you to do to, to look up a little bit more uh, about the war and you know to have that insight into that part of your dad's life cuz he wasn't ready to share it but that doesn't mean that there's no, there's nothing to learn about him by looking into it yourself. Absolutely. Yep. I well, agree. Rob, thank you so much for sharing that story about your father, and thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I was just, uh, like I said, just delighted to um, to talk about this movie and to, you know, uh, spend 40 minutes with Father David talking about film. Hey, hey. well, what, what better way to spend these best minutes than talking about the best years of our lives? Rob, where can folks find you if they want to hear another 40 minutes of you talking about film? Oh, yeah. You should go to a freepodcast.com. Um, you should just go there and then find out how to, you know, we have links to all the different podcasts uh, feeders so you can go to it because we thought it would be clever to name it a free podcast and it's been a search engine nightmare <laughs> because uh, it never comes up. But uh, we have other minute by minute shows as well, but this is what we're doing now and we kind of just do different seasons. So, uh, we just finished up one on Rock Docs. We did one on Monster Rehash of, like, the 90s monster movies. Mm. Um, summer of 97. Coming up, we're going to go through the Bond movies and do a movie for each of the different Bond actors. Um, so, you know, we're just constantly, you know, producing and try to do about, you know, almost an episode a week, sometimes a little less. But, you know, keep give, keep getting that content for people. Listeners, you should check out a couple of those episodes of a free podcast while you're waiting for the next episode of The Best Minutes, which, as a reminder, you can look for on our website, thebestminutes.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Join us here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. 
Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there, because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor. 